Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. I'm going to ask if you'd stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. Starting in Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And God said, note this, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Father, we pray that you anoint your word, that you'd open our hearts and our minds to receive and apply. We commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, just before I start off, we don't usually uh, acknowledge that all the time, this, but I'm not sure. Is this the first time that Mr. and Mrs. Doobie have actually been back? Yeah. Little Lisa and Matthew up there. Newly married. Fresh from their honeymoon, I'm assuming. So, we have been in a series that we are concluding today entitled Jesus Traits. These are not just a collection of traits. These are the three core traits that... That, that were into the identity and nature of who Christ was and is and what he looks to have established within us. The first one we talked about was Scripture. It may seem obvious, but Jesus quoted Scripture a lot. There's a tendency today to say that Scripture is relatively irrelevant or, or especially the Old Testament maybe, but the Old Testament is what he quoted. And so we talked about how that was so much a part and how he applied that and how we need to apply Scripture to our lives and conversations. Last week we talked about servanthood how Jesus begins the process even beforehand. It tells us in Philippians that he, he didn't come as God, he came as a servant to serve people. And then he concludes the, the ministry, the Last Supper, with his last parable, a physical parable of washing the disciples' feet and saying how we're to serve one another and not have vain ambition and reach for things, but consider others. And then today, I want to talk to you a little bit about sacrifice. Before I do that, I want to do a little bit of a quick test I'm going to ask you to respond and see if you can complete the sentence. I want to tell you a little story about a man named Jed, poor mountaineer, barely. That's disturbing. That is a 60-year-old television show that a significant portion of you, old and young alike, could actually complete that sentence. It's amazing the things that stick in our brains and the things that don't. My hope today is that the story I want to share with you in a moment will stick in your brain. And so I want to tell you a little story that begins in Genesis. And as we started with it, it's, it's Abraham, who's a servant of God. He's been called out from a far land. He's pursuing this God who says that he's going to make Abraham a blessing to all people of all time and places. In those days... Uh, what, what came forward from you in children 
um, meant much to the people of that time. It, it, it established their future, their, their heritage, all that was part of that. And so he'd been promised a son, but for decades had gone by and there had been no son provided. Then in the previous chapter, chapter 21, uh, Isaac is born, meaning laughter. And so now he has this son. And now we go then into chapter 22. And it can be deceptive because we can imagine that, um, that, that we have a small child that's being led into this process, and that's not the case. By the time we get to chapter 22, uh, Abraham is probably 100 years old at least. And um, his son Isaac is thought to be a minimum of 25 years of age. There are those that believe that he was actually in his 30s, and very specifically, some believe he was 33. And that has some meaning, if in fact that was true. But either way, he's not a small child, he is a young man. God comes to him, and he speaks to Moses, and, and calls him to take his one and only son, whom you love, this and that's very important that it's mentioned, your only son, and this one whom you love, and then to go over a specific region, a specific location, not just a general place, but he's to go on a three-day journey. And so from the moment he gets the word that his son is to be killed, in that sense, his son is dead already, three days to take the journey to a very specific location. I'll, I'll read this to you. I didn't want you to stand for the whole thing because I, I know you get antsy. So I, I let you sit on verse two, okay? But here's the rest of it, and I'll read it to you. It won't be on the screen. Two or three passages will as I mention them. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, so he's chopping wood, he set out to the place that God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the car, with the donkey, while I and the boy go over there. We'll worship, and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. So he's carrying the wood. Not a hard question, guys. I just said it. All right, let's try this one again. And let's, we're, 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 this is for eternity, okay? Um, God took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. So who's carrying the wood? There. I'm not trying to fool you guys today, okay? This is a straight-up conversation, guys, all right? So he placed it on. So Isaac is carrying the wood and going on what is a three-day journey to a specific location. And um, uh, he himself's carrying the fire and the knife, Abraham. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac asked a legitimate question. Um, Father, yes, my son, uh, the fire, you got that? I got the wood. Uh, where's the lamb? And Abraham answers in verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now, there's some question as to that, um, the, the degree to which he was trusting God in the midst of this. There was other times that he had known that God had, in the past, um, accepted the sacrifice of a lamb in the place of a man as a kind of a placeholder um, of salvation. And so maybe he's thinking that. Maybe he's thinking that, that, Abraham, that Isaac will be resurrected. Um, he has trust in God that God is not like the God of the Canaanites that required their children to be offered up as sacrifices. That is not a Christian trait, never has been a thing of God. It has been the thing of nations, and it is continuing to be one of our own. And so, either way, he's walking into this saying, God will provide. When they reached the place God had told him about, again, that specific place, 
Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So there's wood there, there's this altar, and, and Isaac, though he is willing entirely, he could, not, he could have overcome his father. He's trusting his father. He's a willing participant to this action. And so as the binding takes place and he is strapped to the wood in this sacrifice, and then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay, verse 12, a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Now, I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your what? Only son. And Abraham looked up there in the thicket. He saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed as a burnt offering instead of his son. And then verse 14. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh is the phrase. And to this day, interesting, at the time of the writing of this, to this day in, in Israel, on the mountain, there's a proverb or a statement that says, on the mountain or on that mountain, um, the Lord, it will be provided. Another variation is that the Lord will show up or will appear on this mountain or that he'll provide on this mountain. So as we take this little thing apart, I've already told you um, of the age uh, that was involved of, of him carrying uh, this wood, of this three-day journey, and then eventually him being bound by wood uh, at a place of sacrifice. Uh, those of us who have some understanding of Scripture, this should echo a little bit to you, uh, especially if it's by chance that he was 33, which is the age that Christ uh, was sacrificed on a wooden cross on a hill, which incidentally is the same hill the same location and place that Isaac is being offered up. That's why God's so specific. He's not saying just go and do this. He says, go to this hill, go to this place and this spot. This is all a foreshadowing. This is all to, to tell us of, of what was to take place. And Abraham doesn't call this place the place of testing, the place where I almost lost my kid, um, the place of terror and frustration. He called it Jehovah Jireh place where the Lord provided. And it's interesting that the people even said, you know, that's the place where, where God provided. That's the place where he, he will provide. It's the place where he will show up. This is all pointing towards Christ. It's the place where he will be seen. Don't let anyone ever tell you that the Old Testament is irrelevant to Christians. It's not. The life of Isaac in this moment is the exact picture and foreshadowing of Christ. Both were loved by their father. Both are only sons. Both offered themselves willingly. Both carried wood up the hill of their sacrifice. And both were sacrificed on the same hill. And both were delivered on the third day. This was a significant precursor to who Jesus was and is. It is simply a snippet of, 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 of how the story of salvation is, is woven throughout the entire scripture over generations of time. Uh, if we continue to look into this, we, we find other scriptures that, that then begin to draw our attention. As we mentioned before, John chapter 1, verse 29, where, where John's seeing Jesus, and as he's walking towards him, he has a revelation, and he says, look, the Lamb of God. 
who takes away the sins of the world. Singular. He's going to do it all with one. Millions of lambs had been sacrificed over time in the temple and at other altars, each one to pay for the price of man's sin. Temporary. Fill-ins. Only to point towards. And so the powerful statement that John has when he sees Jesus says, that is the Lamb of God. Not the Lamb of, of Fred and Moses and everyone else. This is the Lamb of God. This, this Lamb covers everything, the sins of the world. It, it was specific that in Luke chapter 22, verse 7, when it says there came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, that Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. This was the Last Supper preparation. And it's linked to the Passover. And the Passover, we said before, was the time in Egypt when the children of Israel were in captivity. And Moses is freeing them at God's direction. And, 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 and the Pharaoh's withholding everything until this last plague where the firstborn child, we said again how the importance of that meant to people. Firstborn child is going to be killed in every household. With the exception of this, if, a, if an innocent lamb without blemish is killed and its blood is spread over the doorposts of the house, both sides and the top, then the angel of death, when he comes, will pass over that house and, and life will be sustained. There will be no death. And sure enough, it happens and all the children of Israel follow this and so their firstborns are not killed. But Egypt has horrible loss and so they release them. And Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, all the other stuff flows out of that. Children of Israel never forgot that. And so every, annual, every year, annually, they would celebrate Passover. Up to 20,000 lambs would be sacrificed in the temple grounds. And so as the lambs are being sacrificed, the Passover lambs are being sacrificed, Jesus is holding this final supper and lets them know this is what it was really all about. Isaac, Passover, all of it's about me, he's saying. I am the sacrifice. And so this is the whole sweep of what you see coming into play here with all of this. This has all been building up from the very beginning. In fact, you can go literally to the beginning when Adam and Eve sin, the very first death that occurs, death enters into the world because of their sin. And so an animal is killed and the skin is taken to cover their nakedness, their shame, and their sin. And that's a precursor to Christ. The very first sacrifice to cover sin is this animal that points towards Christ. So this is central to who Jesus is. This idea of sacrifice is the primary, not only role of him, but also how he lived his whole life. As I said, all these sacrifices have been going on like forever and ever and ever. And all these lambs have been offered up and all these priests had offered it and individuals had offered up. And it got down to a pattern in the time of the temple where you had the temple and you had the outer court where the Gentiles, anybody who was non-Jewish could hang out. But you had to be Jewish, one of the chosen people to step into the next level. And then you had to be a man, sorry ladies, to step into the next level. That's just what it was. And then you had to be a priest to step into the next level. And then there's this place called, uh, and that was the holy place. Then there's the holy of holies separated by this thick curtain where the Ark of the Covenant would reside and, and some unique presence of God was there. And the high priest would go once a year at Passover into that time and the Day of Atonement would come in and, and would offer sacrifices for the whole nation. And he had to cleanse himself physically. He had to cleanse himself spiritually and ritually. 
And they would attach still a rope to his ankle and, and bells would hang from his outfit. And as long as they heard those bells tinkling around and moving around as he's doing things, they realized it was good. But if that stopped hearing that, they realized that he'd missed some point of the ritual cleansing and had been struck dead for approaching the holiness of God without that cleansing. And so they take the rope and they drag the body out and then they come to number two. And if it was me, I'd be sitting here going, no, take three. I can pass. I'll wait till next year. So only the, that priest could enter in. And they'd offer this sacrifice and it happened year after year after year. But when Christ comes, the Lamb of God that pays the price of the world, that's why Hebrews chapter 7 tells us such a high priest like him truly meets our need. These other guys were temps. He is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He's both God and man and therefore can bridge the gap. And unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins because he didn't have any, and then for the sins of the people because he's paying it once and for all. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. This is the central aspect and nature and trait of Jesus Christ. How does this relate to us? A couple of things. One, if you've never understood that provision was made for you and how that provision was made, then you need to understand that today. You need to understand that we stand by faith, that it's because of what Christ has done for us that we're cleansed. Now, so many of us in the church stop right there. We just say, great, I've confessed my sin, I'm in grace, I'm saved, and now I can do whatever I want. And it doesn't matter what my tendencies are. God wants me to be happy. And, and we offend the heart of God with that. It, it, it's not an issue of relationship. That's an, a user's syndrome. It's a cheap grace. Um, real grace draws us in to want to serve God in a way that, that honors him. And that means that even though we've been forgiven, we still stumble and fall and, and do stupid and when we do stupid and we know it, then we come back and we ask for forgiveness again and the beauty is God gives us that. And then we get back up and we get on that bicycle again and see if we can't make it straight again. Another thing is um, today is that somehow this mindset that the idea of sacrifice or struggle is somehow wrong. You know, that God wants us to be happy and bright and all the rest of this stuff and, and wealthy and all healthy and all the rest. And yes, he does want that. But, but we're in a world that has fallen and we encounter fallen people. And sometimes fallen people encounter us. And we do damage to each other. And there's, there's a sickness and a twistedness to this world that we are in. We need to understand that, that happiness is, is not always doing whatever we want to do, but in doing those things that are right, that there can be a fulfillment even when it challenges our own perspectives. You may have heard and probably have heard a lot recently in regards to um, Marxism. My background is Czechoslovak. When I was a kid growing up, Cold War was hot, if you will, uh, uh, my family back in the old country had, had lost much under communism. We were steeped in understanding what socialism and Marxism was about and the damages to it. One of the things that um, was particularly strong about 
you know, Karl Marx, the guy who uh, wrote a lot of this stuff, is um, he believed a couple things. One is that all of life is oppressed and oppressors. And it just constantly rolls. It's like a wheel. The oppressed are here, the oppressors, and then it changes over, changes over, changes over. And that's how you get changes, to get people to realize they're oppressed, to throw off their oppressors, and then they become the oppressors. And you get these other guys that throw off that. And, and so revolution to him was important. And he hated Christianity. In fact, how many of you have heard the phrase um, uh, religion, and he specifically meant Christianity, uh, is the opiate of the masses. Any of you heard that phrase before? A bunch of you have. His view was that there was this viewpoint, this concept of, of, of faith in Christ and in the scripture that, that says there's something about sacrifice that can be a good thing. There's something about suffering that it's not always a horrible thing. It establishes something and, and works something in us. And so those who are truly steeped in Christianity were not revolutionaries per se. Uh, they, they would find meaning in that. And so he wanted to say, no, there's no meaning at all in it. You need to, to be angry and upset and violent and revolt, and then that fuels the revolution of what's going into place. And so he says, no, religion and Christianity, that just makes you quiet and peaceful and kind of drugged. And, and that's not accurate. It was out of his hatred that he would say that. Instead, what it means is that is that when we follow Christ, we understand that there's a different way of living. And while we do not seek out suffering for its own sake, it is recognized that there is a, a beauty or a grace or a strength or, or items that can be done in suffering that changes who we are and how we think and how we operate. Why would anyone follow the ways of God if it doesn't make us wealthier or stronger and has nothing with overthrowing and getting back at the people that, that have hurt me? Um, why would I embrace something that at its core is about individual accountability, brokenness, nonviolence, and something transformative about the struggle and service and sacrifice? Why would I do any of that? Why did these individuals do that. Do we understand that the founder of our faith sacrificed himself? Do we understand that, that of the disciples that followed him after Judas fell away and they had 12 more, that 11 of those 12 all died horrible deaths without seeing great improvement in their stock portfolios? Or positioning? Do we understand that the last one dies alone, exiled, having incredible visions on the island of Patmos? So why would they and why should we follow such a faith? Don't get me wrong. I think there's things that we can apply in Scripture that if we apply them right, do make us happy and satisfied and settled. Maybe not meeting all our desires, but there's something about following those things that it goes this way. God is, in the Scripture it says righteousness. Let me make it a little clear. God is rightness. God is truth. God is reality. To follow him means that we operate in rightness, even if it doesn't always align up with our emotions, that we follow and align up with truth and with reality. To not follow him 
means that, and this is my word, that we, we, we just do wrongness. It means that, that we live in lies. It means that we depart from reality that if I were to channel some of my psychology training from the past would say enters us into psychotic behavior where we're split from reality. So no, we don't have to follow God. We can live in lies, we can live in wrongness, and we can live split from the reality that surrounds us of things. Or we can pick up, as he says in Mark chapter 8, 34, when he called the crowd to him among his disciples, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must what? Deny themselves. Don't you hate scripture sometimes? We don't, we're Americans. We don't deny ourselves anything. I can live out however I want to sexually. I can live out however I want to um, financially. I can live out whatever. I can do whatever I want. Don't you ever tell me what not to do. That's just downright un-American. We are consumers. Biggest economy on the planet. We don't deny ourselves. We indulge ourselves. But the scripture says, whoever wants to be my disciple must, again, what? Deny themselves. Take up their cross follow me that sucks but it goes on it says because whoever wants to save their life is going to lose it but whoever loses their life for me for the gospel save it if you want to live in reality if you want to live in truth if you want to live in rightness then that means there's times of denial that means there's times to pick up our cross that means there's time to follow Christ even when it's against our own emotions and, and, and what we, we want in the circumstance that's where we trust God that's where we trust God it goes on in verse 36 and says what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul there's a continuation of what Jesus was saying in, in the first section I just mentioned or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul and it goes on and says if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with holy angels imagine imagine this imagine that somebody right now pops up in the middle of the service strips off their clothes, gets naked, and, and starts screaming things of hatred because of a position that we take as a church or a position scripturally. That'd be disturbing, wouldn't it? <laughs> you guys are cool with that? All right, wow. Okay, totally called that one wrong. Um, I think you'd find that very disconcerting. It happened in East Point just recently. Small Catholic Church. So let's say it happens here. My thinking is that we would, first of all, try to be as kind and as thoughtful to the individuals and try to work with them as we can to continue on with our service at some point in time. And I think the, road, I think the bulk of us here would sit here and go, you know what, it was a weird moment. These people are a little off, whatever. We're cool. We'll, we'll just... But what happens if it happened every week? What happened if it happened every single week for weeks on end? <laughs> That's different because, you see, I come to church mostly to feel good about myself, to get comfort, to hang with people. The last thing I want to do is feel threatened, discomforted, or possibly persecuted in some way for my faith. That's just not what it's about. Again, Jesus, uh, 12 disciples, um, all of the history of the church, pick up your cross, 
Karl Marx hated Christianity because of these type of scriptures. We have, if we read on, in Romans, Paul says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, and this kind of sums up where we've been at, not by our works, not by what we do, but because of Christ's work on the cross as the Lamb of God. Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. We're not angry, violent people. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've now gained access by faith again into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast all the time about how great we are and how bright and how wonderful and how we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Another passage says, not in and of ourselves. The first thing I want you to understand is that we're not called to fight anyone. We're also not called to be a doormat to anyone. Martin Luther King Jr. said we're not to be the slave of the state, but we're also not supposed to be the master of the state, that the church is to be the conscience of the state. We don't fight. We don't retreat. We stand. We don't fight. We don't retreat. We stand. We don't draw attention to ourselves. We draw attention to Christ. And if that means at times that we suffer, then we suffer. And Marx hates that because that means there's no fuel for his fire. That means there's no reactionaries ready to go out and do violence on behalf of the oppressed and the oppressors and that constant wheeling, turning wheel that Jesus came to break that wheel and free everybody. So what does this have to do with this message? And ours, because of this, if you go on in, in this chapter, in verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Oh, you guys are idiots. No, we glory in our sufferings. Why? Because we're psychotic? No, we're really plugged into reality. Don't get me wrong. We do not look to suffer. Nobody but, but fools want to do that. But we recognize that it's going to come at times. So we glory in our sufferings because of this. We know that suffering produces what? Perseverance. Perseverance. That, that thing that we stick it out, no matter what, we stay the ground. No matter how much we're being beaten, we stay, we stand, we don't retreat, we don't fight. We're standing, we're there. We last a second longer than the next guy until they give up and go away. But that extra second matters. We persevere. And perseverance, what does it give us? Character. 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 A lot of Christians don't want character. They want the cheap fight and the cheap shot. But it's suffering, it's perseverance, and perseverance is character. And character gives us hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Am I going too fast for you? For some of you, yes. Oh, I'll slow it down. Suffering produces perseverance. And per, you know, you're just being annoying, Randy. I know. I want you to remember this. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. W.H. Auden was a, a poet in the last century. When his atheist friends asked him why he jettisoned his atheism, he also struggled with homosexuality most of his life and processed that in the midst of faith as well. He says, in every respect, he says this, when he asked why he got rid of his atheism, he says, I believe in Jesus because this. <laughs> I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams. He fulfills none of my dreams. He is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. What Auden was saying is that Jesus is the God you can't make up. 
On went on to say that, 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 that embracing Christianity was the only mature way to understand human darkness and potential. The point of Christian belief, he argued, was to challenge our self-deceptions and self-pity and keep us focused on the only thing that matters, Jesus' love command. So Christian faith obliged believers to face the facts of this suffering world, not to veer from them. Sacrifice, to surrender or give up or permit injury or disadvantage to for the sake of something else. Karl Marx hated Christianity because he recognized it would not fuel the fire that he was trying to ignite that lit up the world and ultimately killed several hundred million people by the time it was finished in the countries it took hold of. So two things I'd have you understand here today as we draw this to a close. One is this, that Christ's sacrifice is woven throughout the scripture from that first animal that dies to Isaac with that three-day journey to a very specific place, carrying the wood, being on that place and willingly die as an only son, that Christ later comes and is sacrificed and God gives his own son in, in place of all that. That is the first thing I'd have you understand. But the other thing is this, that there's suffering and that suffering is actually part of it, that sacrifice on all of our parts is part of faith and following that. Now, sometimes we suffer because we're stupid. And if we're stupid, that's different. We need to acknowledge our stupidity and, 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 and make amends and then get back into the right thinking again. But other times, we've done right and people will hate you for that. They will attack you for that. Grace. We don't want to run to suffering, but we don't want to run from suffering. There are times that we need to dig in our heels and say that we stand here on this place and we will not move. We will not attack, but we will not retreat. Today, the world is mostly seeing Christians that are arrogant, loud, and angry and have become perfect Marxists in doing so. We are not to be doormats. We are to be strong and bold. We are to pick up our cross, though, and follow Christ. If we don't, we may be very good Americans, but we become lousy Christians. People see us and our offenses, and they no longer see Christ and what he did for their offenses. Christ that I serve was strong and bold. But he is also not arrogant, never loud. And whatever anger he ever exhibits is usually because of the things that are hurting and damaging other people. At times the church has become hated because we have acted hatefully. And that's our bad. But make no mistake, they will still hate the church and hate you, particularly when we're being what we're supposed to be in Christ. Especially when we're following the ways of Scripture. Especially when we're picking up our cross and enduring on his behalf or taking stances of that type and just quietly standing. Why? Because it challenges their preconceptions. 
It challenges their behavior, not because we're attacking or drawing attention to it, but just simply by existing and being. Make no mistake, there are times and places that there will be persecution and challenge and suffering. And that's okay because suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. Scripture. Jesus lived it and breathed it and used it. We should too. Servanthood. It was the beginning and the ending and all the way through his ministry. We're supposed to serve one another. Not demand our own ways. We'll look to help others and, and be an example of Christ. But the central issue of all was sacrifice. That we stand for what's right. And at times that means that we struggle in this world. But that shapes who we are. And so, if there is somebody who stands up, and I'm not asking for it, I'm not looking for it or volunteering it, and does something stupid and crazy in one of our services, and we sit there and say, well, it's a one-off thing, we'll let that have a pass. And please understand, I'm hoping and don't believe that we're going to have this as a regular event. But if we did, or in your workplace, if you're being challenged on your faith, or in whatever relationship that you have, remember, not violence, not retreat, a quiet stance. And if you suffer through that, God's shaping you. Be happy. We're going to take a communion today. I just thought it was appropriate. We're talking about sacrifice that we take a moment, and so we're having it today instead of next week. Our communion is an open community. You don't have to be a member of this church. You do have to be a follower of Christ. The only thing we would ask is that you would hold the cup and the bread and we'll take it together. Bread is underneath and the other cup and the wine's on top. So as we take this opportunity, I ask you to really consider what has been discussed here today and in what way that applies to your life going forward. So Father, we come before you, not boastfully or proud, but humbly and broken. We come and oftentimes we're so aware of our own shortcomings. And you don't want us to wallow in, 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 in self-deprecation and, and take us down. You want us to stand strong. And so, Lord, we, for, we ask forgiveness for whatever we've done to offend. And we're specific about that even right now as we receive. But then, Lord, give us the strength to stand. And even when we suffer and struggle, to realize there's something shaping us in that moment. In those moments, we become closer to be like you. As we prepare for this meal, Lord, open our hearts and minds to your inspection today that we would understand and know ourselves better in the light of your grace. In Jesus' name. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, not works, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Today, I've told you a little story. I hope it sticks into your head and your mind heart a lot more than about an old mountaineer named Jed.
Someone said after first service that I should have closed. The first service was saying, y'all come back now, you hear? (laughs) But I thought that'd be silly, so I'm not going to do that. (laughs) There are some things that stick in our hearts and minds and some things that don't. Don't forget this. Father, I thank you. I am so conscious that it's only by your grace that I stand. Lord, you have been so gracious over the years to so many of us in this place. So Lord, I pray that we'd channel the irritation, anger, frustration we feel in proper ways that honor you and do not cause disdain to your name, that we don't get so wrapped up in our own offenses that people see that and not you who died for their offenses. We don't need to be doormats, God, but we also um, don't need to be angry, violent people. Lord, let us walk. Let us walk in faith and in grace and let us stand regardless of persecution or suffering and having done all, as your word says, to stand. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask these things. And the church said, amen.